following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. Small band of merry men and merry women. It's good to be good to be with you. I'm going to do my best to hold this in my hand. The little handheld thing is broken. Tata, this is a little hot. Can you uh, just turn that down for me or Jake or somebody? I'm glad you guys braved the weather to come here. I know that it's treacherous out there. Um, I, for one, am glad, uh, but grateful to be with you. We're going to begin uh, or resume our study in John chapter 15, so please open your Bibles to John chapter 15, and particularly in verse 12, we will begin. John 15, verse 12. We're going to read through verse 4 of chapter 16. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I ask in the Father, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but but, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They would put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now for this time of study and examination of your word, that our minds would be open to, to the, the truth of, of the gospel as it's articulated to us. 
by the word of your son, Jesus. We ask that our hearts would be open and attuned to the leading of the Spirit, that we would see in this text our need to love and obey, the areas in which we must repent and confess, where we must act and where we must pray. We ask, Lord, that you would embolden us to walk faithfully in light of these things. We pray for those who are not able to make it for sickness or health or for other reasons, that they would be comforted now by your word and spirit and that they would be drawn near to you. And we ask for those who have not gathered with us because of sin or neglect that you would confront them there and just challenge them that they would repent perhaps or confess their sins and return God to you and to the fellowship of your body. And Lord, we ask above all, God, that you would be glorified and that the name of Jesus would be exalted. We love you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know if you caught any of the Winter Olympics these last few days. Uh, there was a lot going on and it was easy, of course, to miss. But if you've been paying attention, you know that uh, the U.S. has won a couple gold medals. Uh, that's great. And one of the ones I paid a little bit of attention to, if I paid any, was the men's figure skating. And I know that surprises you because I'm such a you know football fan, but I actually like watching figure skating. And uh, uh, we won the gold there. And the reason we won is not because necessarily our guy Chen was better, but because everybody else fell. And that's not a way you want to win the gold medal, Bill. I know that, but I'll take it, and I'll root for USA for that reason and that reason alone. Many of the people who were hopeful and possibly could have won did not win because they fell, they stumbled, they tripped, they didn't land right, and it didn't look good. And at the end of the day, the U.S. took home the gold because our skater did not fall. That's the goal, of course, when you're figure skating. You don't want to fall. Falling is bad, generally not part of the routine. You try to stay on your skates the whole time, except when you're in the air. If you fall, the judges take those points away from you. You don't get as high of a score. You don't win gold. Well, Jesus also has a goal here, and the goal is for his disciples not to fall or to falter or to stumble or to fall away. I take that from verse 1 of chapter 16. There's lots to take from the passage. I'm going to zero in on just one and leave the rest to you for study and discussion later. But look at verse 1 of chapter 16. I have said all of these things to you. That's not just what we've read this morning, but really in the past chapter and a half, 15, 14, I have said all of these things to you to keep you, the ESV puts it, falling away. Or as the NAS may put it, to keep you from stumbling, faltering, falling. This is something close to what we would call apostasy, sort of abandoning Christ because the circumstances of following him became too difficult. So Jesus is in his farewell discourse. This is the, the last words of Jesus to his disciples to give them what they need to continue on in steadfast endurance. He's telling them what they must do and how they must live after he leaves. And he says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. That's the goal of Jesus in this last evening before he's arrested and crucified. To remind and to teach and instill within these men the need for steadfast, firm 
endurance. That is simply our goal then this morning. My goal is to faithfully take these words and encourage you with Jesus' own teaching to be steadfast. Our goal in the Christian life is to remain faithful to the word of Christ so that we may be kept from falling away. We won't get much into a lot of the other reasons the book of Hebrews is an excellent resource for what it means to be steadfast, but just look at what the, the, the solutions to, following, to, to not following away are. He spoke earlier in chapter 15 of being united to him in such a way that branches are united to a vine to receive their life and their source of being and from which they are able then to produce fruit. You are falling away if, because of your distance or separation from the vine, you do not bear fruit. And ultimately, the vine dresser may come and prune you and remove you. Here we see a commandment to love. We see a warning for the impending nature of the Christian life, one of enduring suffering and persecution. We see the need for the Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to sustain us. We ultimately see the resolve Christians must have as Jesus himself had when we face the hour of our own death or suffering or trial, whatever it may be. So we must keep from stumbling. In other words, we are to be steadied, stable, steadfast. And I want to propose just from looking at our passage, we are to be steadied by four things. First, we are steadied in the faith by love. We've spoken a lot about love in the last several weeks, and I encourage you to go back into some of the past uh, chapters and consider what it looks like to love the way Christ models love for us. But because it's a recurring theme, it's important to revisit as it comes up. And so Jesus, in the beginning of our passage, reminds us that we are to love one another in order that we do not fall away, in order to keep from stumbling we should love one another. That's, in fact, the command he gives. Look what it says in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Now, he said this already before. He, he said this after he's washed the disciples' feet, and he'll continue to say that even in the prayer in chapter 17, that they would love one another. His disciples would be known for their love for one another. So the command to love one another is to serve the purpose of remaining steadfast in faith. So it's not a nice auxiliary to being a Christian, but necessary if you and I desire to not stumble but remain steadfast. The command Jesus gives to his disciples is to love one another. And the model of that love is Jesus himself. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, he says, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, this is a unique statement in all of the Bible. Very rarely are people called friends of God. In fact, you have two examples in the Old Testament. Does anyone know who they are? Anyone want to venture a guess? Moses and Abraham, great job, Tato. 
Absolutely right. Moses and Abraham were called friends of God. Nobody else. Jesus was accused of being a friend to sinners. But here, out of Jesus' own mouth, does he speak to his own disciples? And he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he says, amazingly, in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. So Jesus invites his disciples not just into a master-lord-servant relationship, though his disciples are at the very least that. In fact, that's one of the most famous identities that Paul or the apostles take on themselves. He opens up their letters. Paul, a servant, same word, doulos, a servant of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So this isn't a bad thing. It's a dignified thing to be a servant of the Lord. But he says, no longer are you servants, but you are friends. And the friends here of Jesus is not just sort of two-way, modern way we think about friendships, this sort of reciprocal, I like you, you like me, we serve one another in this sort of capacity. But here, especially in John's gospel, friendship is not that much distinguished from love, from agape. Friendship for Jesus are those who are the objects of his love. It's something more than some reciprocal affiliation or mutual affection. This is love set on his disciples. And so, yes, although Abraham and Moses are called friends of God, God is never called their friend. God is not the friend of Abraham or the friend of Moses. God is never called their friend. And all Jesus can refer to Lazarus even as his friend. Jesus is not ever called the friend of Lazarus, interestingly enough. And neither God nor Jesus is ever referred to in Scripture as the friend of anyone. This mutual, reciprocal friendship of the modern variety here is not in view. And in fact, it can't be in view without demeaning God. And yet here is Jesus speaking to disciples, calling them friends. Well, what distinguishes then friends from servants or slaves? What's the difference if they're no longer called servants but now are called friends? What's the, what's the distinguishing mark between a friend and a servant of the same person? Well, it's not obedience, but it's revelation. Look in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command, for no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. He is told to obey and must obey. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So friends have the privilege of the revelation that the Lord or the Master gives. They're brought in and made privy of the thinking behind the choices and the commands. So the, the distinguishing mark of a friend to Christ is not simply obedience. And though we do see in verse 14, friends will do what he commands. Not as a condition of that friendship but as a characteristic of it. No, friends are given revelation. Instead of simply being told what to do, we are informed of his thinking. We enjoy his confidence in, of our master. That's what's unique among friends. Just consider friendships in your own life. 
particularly those close friends, when there's a major life decision, usually you are not simply told what might happen, but are often brought in for counsel. You're a sounding board. You're let into the life of that brother or sister, and you're sharing your thoughts. You're maybe asking for advice or for help. While on a much greater and grander level, of course, Jesus invites us into his own heart. He lets us in on his own thinking. He shows us why the commands he gives to us are good. He shows us how God is fulfilling his purposes in our life and in our circumstances, even though they don't seem like they'd be that great for us. So we can obey Christ, not simply as a slave obeys a master, but as a friend who has been brought into the understanding and the counsel of a wise teacher, listens, serves, and loves. So that's the point Jesus wants us to get to, to trust him as a friend brought into his fellowship through revelation, whereby we can know his heart and obey and be steadfast. Jesus, of course, is known by his words. He teaches us. We have his words preserved by the Spirit as he guided men to write the Bible in front of us. He is also known to us, of course, by his Spirit. And so we have both his word and his Spirit to guide us in the understanding of his affections, his will, and his own heart. This is what it means to be a friend of Jesus, to be led by the Spirit whom he has sent to us, to be guided by his word, which has been preserved for us, that we may walk steadfastly, knowing him more and more as we study and submit ourselves to it, because he has loved us. Now, we have not earned our friendship. We did not gain it, and therefore it may not be ours to lose. In verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So friendship means that the love of Christ has been set on us and we have been brought into this fellowship whereby we are knowing and understanding and experiencing the very heart of Christ for his people so that we would bear fruit and be steadfast. When we think about the purpose that Jesus says in verse, 16, verse 1 of 16, to keep us from falling away or stumbling, we have to go all the way to the beginning of our relationship with Jesus, where he does not simply come as our master, but he comes to us as our friend. This does not undermine his authority and his, his ability to tell us what to do. He gives us our commands, and the friends are known by their obedience to Christ but we are friends because we also know Christ. This is love. And this love, of course, is rooted in our election. We are chosen by Christ, appointed to bear good fruit. So love is rooted in election, and it bears fruit in three ways. We bear fruit because we've been chosen as a friend of Christ. We bear fruit in love for one another. This is why the command has been given to us in verse 12 and even down in verse 17. These things I command you that you will love one another. Part of the fruit that we bear springs from the reality that we've been chosen by God to bear such fruit. And that looks like turning to one another in real, humble, genuine Christian love. Jesus, who is our model in that sense. But in another way, we are to bear fruit in obedience to Christ. 
It is not simply in loving one another, but also obeying the other commands Jesus gives to us. For that, we must study Scripture, come to know and be familiar with his teaching, drawing out principles that we may guide and be led by. We bear fruit in love for one another and in obedience to Christ, but we also bear fruit in dependence upon God. There in verse 16, we're told that we should go and bear fruit so that it would abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Part of the fruit that we bear as friends who trust and love and obey Christ is that we come to the Father in the name of Christ to show our accountability or our dependability upon God. Humility and dependence upon God is a mark of Christian maturity, and it is a fruit that we are intended to produce as friends of Christ. I think ultimately we take all these together, and one of the other fruits we see that Christ intends for us to produce is the fruit of conversion. Actually, throughout our whole passage here, there's a theme of the missional sending. It says, I chose you, verse 16, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This is the same language he'll use there in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples, to go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That is, you should go and bear fruit as witnesses to the love of Christ upon his disciples. And others seeing that love will come to know Christ themselves as God wills. And so this love is rooted in election and it bears fruit because friends of Christ trust and are known by him. I just want to ask a question then. Can, can foundation build a culture of a sort of dogged commitment in pursuit of one another's needs and well-being? Not from a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of love. I, I want to commend us. In many ways, we do that well by God's grace. We, we love each other well. But we shouldn't deceive ourselves to thinking that we, we've not failed one another in this and that we don't have still more to go. What we want to see at Foundation is a culture built of genuine, dogged, unflinching love for one another, the pursuit of one another's well-being in, in Christ, not out of obligation because you signed a covenant as a member, but because you've really committed to love one another. If we are to be steadfast, if we are to be kept from falling away, to, to keep ourselves from stumbling, we must turn to this commitment of love, which is rooted in our election, chosen by Christ, appointed to bear fruit, because he has seen us and loved us and calls us friends. This reality is alone to humble us. We who are enemies of God, enemies of Christ, we see the two, one for the other. He says elsewhere, if they hate me, they hate the Father also. Because we are enemies of God and his word and his will, we also are enemies of Christ. And the only way that we will find ourselves in a reconciled relationship is if our enemy lays down a sword and calls us friend. In fact, Jesus goes a step further than that that we might be redeemed, he lays down his own life. Greater love, he says, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's not simply saying, hey, disciples, your job is to do whatever it takes for the sake of others. 
But he's actually saying, I will lead you in the way of love. I will lay down my own life for you. We were once enemies, but now friends. So the first way we are steadied, that we may not fall or stumble, is by love. Secondly, we are steadied by knowledge. Again, look in verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And again in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And he goes on to speak about the hostility that the world will have towards his disciples because they do not love or know Christ or the Father. So we are to be steadfast by the knowledge of Christ's word, the knowledge of his teaching. Primarily, we are kept steadfast by knowledge of the Father's will. All that the Father has made known to Christ, he has made known to us. This is certainly true in the disciples' case who heard and got to participate in the teaching in the life of Jesus in a way that we will not until heaven. But what was, has been preserved for us in the scriptures mean that we can hear all that the Father has intended for us to know and believe, sufficient for our salvation and for life and for godliness. All that the Father has given to Christ, he gives to us. So we have knowledge of the will of God, that we might not stumble into wickedness or fall away into apostasy, but remain steadfast. We also have knowledge of the cost of discipleship. He makes much to do about this idea of that what it will cost us when we faithfully follow Jesus, when we seek to love one another as he has loved us, when we go and give ourselves over to a commitment to serve God in his glory above all else. There will be a great and high cost for such discipleship. No, he says in verse 18, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. On the contrary, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things, verse 21, they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So one of the things we need to quickly begin to understand is just how great the cost of discipleship may be. We need to have an accurate accounting of that. One of the greatest mistakes we can make in sharing the gospel and speaking about the Christian life, especially to unbelievers, is underplaying sometimes the difficulty of the Christian life. Sometimes it is all well and good. Much of the time, it is not. Yes, we have joy in Christ. Yes, we have victory over sin. Yes, there is so much more that we want to bring and attract unbelievers into, but we do not want to pretend that our life cannot be difficult, that we will not face hardships, that all might not be taken away from us at any moment. The cost of following Jesus may indeed bring the hatred of the world to our doorstep. More and more, it seems that this is true in our own culture. So what we need to understand is that there is a knowledge here that we must ascertain about what it means to be a disciple and the cost of that discipleship. And the more knowledge we have about what it means to be a disciple and what it costs, we will be helped to anticipate the hardships that will follow. 
but it would also help us grow into knowledge of who Christ is. We will be sustained by such knowledge of the Father's will, despite the cost of discipleship. But the ultimate knowledge we receive, of course, is the knowledge of Christ as the Son of God. He is the one who has been sent by the Father. And it is this knowledge that the world ultimately comes to reject. Romans 1 tells us that we all come to know God as creator. We all can see it plainly in the, in the world that we look at. We all are born with an innate knowledge that we have been created. And yet we suppress that truth. Paul says we trade it for a lie and we worship the creature instead of the creator. And we turn our flesh and our passions among ourselves rather than allowing God to fulfill our greatest desires. When we suppress this, we also suppress the knowledge of Christ as the Son of God, having been sent by the Father. See, the others will reject Christ. He'll deny him despite all of his clear teachings and the work he does. That's what he gets at when he says that in verse 21, all these things they do because they do not know him or him who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken, they would have not been guilty of sin. That means they, they would not have had their sin, but he was there. He taught to them. He performed miracles in their midst. And now they have no excuse for their sin of rejection, of denial, of hatred. For whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24 says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. In order that the scripture would be fulfilled, they hated me without a cause. Their hatred and rebellion was not just simply because they didn't like what Jesus said or did. It was certainly not less than that, but it was because they did not like or love Jesus. They did not accept him as who he was, what he claimed to be. But it is our knowledge that Christ is indeed who he has claimed to be that provides solid ground and sure footing for Christians in a hostile world. See, he's setting us up to recognize that we're going out into a world as sheep often go to wolves. There are enemies, not only outside, but also within, that seek to undermine and destroy the faith of Christians. They tempt us to doubt and unbelief. But the knowledge of Christ, the Son of God, who has been sent to us by the Father, that he would lay down his life to redeem us from sin and reconcile us to God for all eternity, that knowledge alone provides solid ground and sure footing for those who are weary in a hostile world. You teachers who struggle within public school about the many demands against your own conscience, students who deal with the culture within their own teaching or their friends and the peers that want to draw them into their own worldviews. The TV shows that begin infecting us and teaching us about what it means to be a modern person. All of this may seem daunting or even a source of doubt for us unless we turn our attention to Christ and affirm, as his disciples do, that he is Christ, the Son of God, that he alone is a solid ground and a sure footing for Christians in a hostile world. Once we make that declaration, come what may, the world will hate us, but they hated Christ first. We are kept steadied by love and by knowledge. Third, we are steadied by truth. 
what does Jesus give to us? He leaves us not as orphans in a hostile world that hates us because it hated him, but he sends to us the Spirit. In verse 26, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning, speaking there of the disciples. So here we have truth that sustains Christians in a hostile world, struggling with doubt or persecution or the desire or temptation to return back to the world that they came from, back to the idolatry that they repented of. And Jesus says, believe in me and I will send my spirit to help you. He will bear witness about me. He will strengthen you in your faith so that you will not stumble. He calls him the spirit of truth. Friends, this is what we need more than ever. We are surrounded constantly by lies, lies the world tells us, but often lies of our own making. We don't need someone else to trick us into temptation. We are perfectly fine in tempting ourselves. We tell ourselves lies all the time to justify our words, to justify our actions, our sins, our thoughts, our grumblings and our complaints, our insults, and our words like daggers. We lie to ourselves all the time to tell us that we deserve something even though we've earned it on the back of sin. The spirit of truth is given to us to cut through the lies, the lies we hear in the world and the lies we tell ourselves. The spirit of truth bears testimony. He is a witness to Christ. He says, don't believe what the world is telling you. Don't believe that lie that you know to be untrue. Instead, believe Christ. Remember Christ. He, as he has just told us a few chapters ago, is the way, the truth, and the life. And so the Spirit is given to us as a helper that when we are tempted to stumble and fall away, he clears away the lie, he speaks to us in the voice of truth that we would not stumble. We also are given the truth of our own testimony. We look at one another's lives and we see the testimony of faithful endurance in the lives of other believers. We see that others among us have borne the same kind of grief we are in. We see those who have overcome the same challenges we have dealt with or are dealing with. We see victory where we experience defeat. We see triumph where we certainly feel and experience conquest. We are down, but others in their joy can pull us up. So the spirit of truth which helps us clear away the lies also empowers other believers and disciples to model for us, much as Christ has done, what it means to walk in the spirit of truth. And it's their testimony that speaks not only to other believers, but to the whole world, that what we believe about Christ is true. And as the Lord gives eyes to see and ears to hear, they too will come to believe it. So we're kept steadfast and steadied by love and by knowledge and by truth. And lastly, we're kept steadfast by hope. Again, in verse 16, he tells us that all these things he said to us to keep us from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. And indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that they are offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. 
See, implicit here in these four verses is the reality that those who look to do harm, who seek to harm the church or the disciples of Christ, his friends, are actually acting foolishly. They're ignorant of the God who will judge the wicked and vindicate the innocent. Those who are righteous, that is Christ's bride, will be vindicated. They will triumph over the proud. He says in verse 4, when their hour comes, there will be an hour where we may meet our death, he says. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Of course, he is not. They're ignorant of the true God. But there is another hour that is coming, not for us, but for them. And in that hour, God will establish his justice. For us, friends, that is great hope and comfort. Because we are kept steadfast knowing that even to the very last breath we may draw, God's word stands true. We have hope, not simply that God would make all things right, but that he will establish peace and justice over the enemies of Christ and his church. And so Jesus, he says, was with them, but now he must leave. And so thus we must practice this idea of remembrance. When he says in verse 4, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I want to encourage you to, in your own devotion, perform the act of remembrance. Practice remembrance. What are we to remember? We're to remember the hour of Christ's death. We're to remember his atonement, that he has left precisely because he must go to the cross and atone for the sins of all those who had a faith in him. And not only this, but to remember his resurrection, to celebrate the goodness that God had vindicated the innocent, has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our account, and has raised him from the dead, thus approving of his sacrifice, and ascends to the, heavenly, to the Father in the heavenly places, and is seated at his right hand. We remember the sacrifice Christ made, but also we remember and celebrate the ascension that Christ has taken. We remember his words and his work. We remember his atonement and ascension. And notice how all of these build upon top of one another. Jesus, who has called us his friend, keeps us and steadies us by his love, by his knowledge, by the truth of that knowledge, guided by the Spirit, and leads us ultimately to hope. That is the greatest need we have for those who are tempted to stumble. It is hope. Hope is not something that is fleeting. Hope is something that is fixed. What is the hope that Christians must fix themselves on? It is on Christ himself, who will come again. That the hour of those who persecute the church, who hate Christ and therefore hate his people, they will meet their own end. But those who are righteous will be vindicated. Those who are sorrowful will be made joyful. Those who cry will have their tears wiped away. Those who mourn will celebrate. The meek will inherit the earth. We see the day coming when all that Christ has performed for us will come to its full fruition. That's our greatest hope. So how do we keep from stumbling? We remember these things. We're steadied and remain steadfast. We're kept steadfast by the love Christ has placed on us when he calls us friends, he has chosen us in himself by the knowledge of the Father's will that he's revealed to us. 
by the knowledge that He is the Son of God, by the truth of the Spirit He sent to us, and the testimony of our brothers and sisters around us, and ultimately by the hope that just as He was with His disciples and has left, that He will come again and make all things new. Friends, I want to encourage you to trust and hope in Jesus, even now, that you have a sure and steady hope in Christ. You may be, in whatever circumstance, you are tempted to stumble, dealing with difficult situations and, and circumstances. We may be aware of some of them. Many of them we may not be, but you carry them on internally. Fix your hope on Christ. Ask the Spirit to clear away the lies that you believe or the lies that you're being told. Show from Scripture the Spirit of truth. Be led to the reality that Christ loves you and has given himself for you. Because you are his friend, Christ lays down his life. But friends, if we are not friends of Christ, when he comes again, he will deal with us just as he will with them at that hour. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help, God, to love one another, to serve one another, not out of obligation, but as love, as Christ modeled love for us. We pray, God, that we would we would seek truth and clarity in a world and a culture full of lies. That we wouldn't be swept up in the, the fits and the rages of the nations that plot in vain, but we would, we would see with clarity the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. That we would be led in clarity and wisdom to follow the truth. And that, that truth would lead us to great hope and victory that we would remember over and over again what it means to be a friend of Christ. Celebrate together the sacrifice he made for us on the cross and also remember and celebrate the resurrection from the dead, the ascension, the intercession, and the ministry and look forward to that day where he comes again. That is our hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no-derivative 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. What wondrous love is this, so my soul? What wondrous love is this? Oh, okay.